Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Before we start the show, a couple of small announcements. First, this episode references a series of images carved on a temple wall. That temple has been fully documented and published by the Epigraphic Survey, and you can read the publication for free. The University of Chicago has made PDFs of their temple studies available online to all. If you like, you could read this as we go. The title of this book is Reliefs and Inscriptions at Luxor Temple, Volume 1, The Festival Procession of Opet in the Colonnade Hall. End quote. The book is massive, with detailed drawings of the scenes and translations of the texts. If you want to follow along, I will occasionally reference the page numbers for certain scenes. So if you would like to see Opet in action, you can do so for free. Follow the link in the episode description, or search Luxor Temple Volume 1 Chicago. It should be the first result. Secondly, this might be one of those episodes that is easier to consume in sections. To accommodate everyone, I have treated each phase of the festival as a discrete chapter. There are musical interludes between to provide a rest here and there. So if you ever need a break, there should be an opportunity every so often. This episode includes descriptions of animal sacrifice. Ancient Egyptian festivals included offerings of meat, which required the public butchering of cattle. The temple art shows this process in action, and it does get a bit gruesome. I will let you know when that is coming, but please, listen with discretion. Oh, and since this is about a festival, there will be plenty of adult themes as well. Drinking, partying, pleasure, that sort of thing. So, bear that in mind. Now then, let's begin. Salam alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 146, Restoration 3, Tutankhamun in Opet. Today, we describe the culmination of Tutankhamun's restoration project. After many years of work, the king's sculptors have added lavish decorations to many temples. One of those temples preserves scenes of the enormous Opet festival, an annual celebration in honour of Amun-Ra and his family. Tutankhamun and his wife Ankesen Amun participated in this festival, and thanks to his artists, we have a detailed record of what happened. This episode comes to you on behalf of Brandy, Rhodey, Joan and Amanda. They generously signed up to the Patreon in March 2021. Folks, your offerings are too kind. I have no doubt that Amun-Ra the mother, Moot, and Konsu, the moon, look upon your kindness and smile. Thank you for joining the celebration of all things ancient Egypt. This is a big episode, but it is also fun. 
we are exploring a major celebration where many people could enjoy food, drink, and a great party. Also, our records of the festival are vibrant and detailed. So, this episode is big, but hopefully entertaining as well. With that in mind, let's start the proceedings. And in the words of a famous host, It's the old pet fest with our special guest, Two Tank Almond! Chapter 1. The year was 1336 BCE, give or take. It was still Regnal Year 8 under the power of Neb Keperu Ra. King Tutankhamun was approximately 17 years old. He was mature enough to lead rituals and worship of the gods. As pharaoh, Tutankhamun was high priest of all deities, and throughout the year, the young king would need to lead festivals and celebrations. The largest of these was Opet. The Opet festival was enormous. It was dedicated to Amun-Ra, the king of the gods, lord of the thrones. Amun gave the pharaohs their power and authority. His priests anointed each king when they came to power. And in some circumstances, Amun-Ra was described as the father, literally, of the ruler. So the great god was intimately connected with the power of the king. In the 18th dynasty, many pharaohs celebrated this deity above all. The Opet festival was a great way to do this. Opet took place once a year, around August or September. It was the season of the flood, when the Nile overflowed its banks. The river waters rose high, covering the fields and nourishing the farms. The flood was the most important event in Egypt's annual calendar. Without it, the land would suffer drought, the farms would decay, society would collapse. So, it was essential that the flood happened on time, and did its job. As you can imagine, the Egyptians believed that great gods like Amun-Ra made that happen. So as the season of the flood began, it was time to honour those deities. The Opet festival happened in that context. Opet, or Ipet, occurred in Waset, aka Thebes or Luxor. The great southern city, Waset was the home of Amun-Ra and his family. The gods dwelled in the temples of Karnak, Ipet-Sut, and Luxor, Ipet-Reshit. Their statues lived in secret shrines at the heart of these monuments. Amun-Ra and his family were the lords of the Ipet sanctuaries. As you can guess, the names of Karnak and Luxor became the name of the festival. Over time, the temples of Ipet-Sut and Ipet-Reshit gave their name to the gods that dwelled there. Amun-Ra sometimes had the title Amun of Ipet, or Amun of Opet, and the word Ipet even grew to include the city as a whole. In some contexts, Egyptians called the southern city Ipet-Shemau, the Epet of southern Egypt. So Epet, Opet, became a broad term from which the festival got its name. That's all well and good, but what does Epet even mean? 
EPIT has a few meanings in different contexts. At a basic level, you can translate it as a secret or secluded room, somewhere restricted, off-limits. So you could use EPIT for a temple, a shrine, a private apartment, or something along those lines. That is the basic gist. The festival of EPIT, OPIT, was a festival that occurred in secret, secluded spaces. So that's the background of the festival and its name. Now, what did it involve? Throughout this episode, I am going to provide a detailed description of the OPET festival under King Tutankhamun. Of course, I cannot cover everything, and the stuff I do talk about may seem complicated. But really, the OPET festival is quite simple. If you want the short version, here it is. The OPET festival started at Karnak. The king and priests would honour the great gods, Amun-Ra, Mut, and Khonsu. They would present offerings, prayers, and worship for the deities. Then, they would take the statues of these gods out of their hidden shrines. The priests would carry the deities out of Karnak. In a grand procession, they would make their way past cheering crowds. They, and the king, headed out of Karnak Temple and went south. They went to the Temple of Luxor. At Luxor, the festival reached its climax. The gods and the king participated in secret, sacred rituals. The great god Amun would visit his southern counterpart. He and the pharaoh would commune with one another. They would renew their authority and power together. Amun-Ra would energize the king, Tutankhamun, giving him health and strength. Tutankhamun would energize Amun, refreshing his power over creation and the universe. As they did so, the king and the gods renewed the fertility of Egypt, so these rituals were essential for the land's prosperity. Once their work was done, the gods would travel back to Karnak Temple. They departed Luxor, headed north, and returned to their homes. Then, they went back to their shrines, and the festival was complete. That's it. That's Opet in a nutshell. End of episode. Cue the music. Opet was a grand festival, a spectacular party. But why am I talking about it now? What does this have to do with Tutankhamun? Well, we know that Tutankhamun participated in numerous Opet festivals. For one thing, the king of Egypt was obliged to lead these celebrations. Even as a child, Tutankhamun was high priest of all the gods, so chances are he performed these rituals many times in his life. More importantly, Tutankhamun left a detailed record of Opet as it occurred in his reign. In the days of Tutankhamun, royal artists carved images of Opet at Luxor Temple. On the walls of a great hall, they inscribed hieroglyphs and scenes of the festival. These carvings provide a detailed description of Opet at the time. So, from this king, we get one of the best records for Opet as a whole. It is an important resource. Tutankhamun's wall carvings give a great opportunity to describe events that he participated in. Looking at these images and reading the texts, we can reconstruct a part of his life. Something he did, places he visited. So I would be remiss if I did not maximise this opportunity. With such a detailed record, we can tell some wonderful stories. The rest of this episode is dedicated to a detailed reconstruction of Tutankhamun's Opet Festival. 
really detailed. I pulled out all the stops on this one. You see, the records of Tutankhamun give a great sense of the events and the places they occurred. Some of those places are still standing, and we can visit them with the king. So this episode is big. We will follow the Opet festival as it happened, and stop off at the places it occurred. Maybe we can bring the world of Tutankhamun's Opet fest back to life. So that is the background of the Opet festival, the essential material that you need to know. Now it is time for the history of Egypt deep dive. Let's get that first break out of the way. Then, in chapter 2, we begin the party. The Opet Festival of King Tutankhamun. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Chapter 2. In the season of inundation, Egypt enjoyed the blessings of the Nile flood. The river was high, the waters covered the fields. The weather was cooling as summer faded away. The days were shortening, and the equinox would soon occur. The autumn equinox was the moment when day and night were of equal length. I suspect that Opet occurred around that time. In the second month of the flood, Preparations were underway in Waset. The southern city, aka Thebes or Luxor, was getting ready for a festival. The timing was good, as the river covered farms and left many people with spare time. The harvest was in the granaries, the storerooms were full of produce. In a good year, everything was going well. The sun was moving across the heavens, heading towards the south. So it was a blessed period a time of fertility, productivity, and worship. One day, great ships appeared on the river. Huge barges, brightly painted and glittering with gold, came from the north. These were the royal ships. The pharaoh and his wife had left their northern residence and come to the southern city. Tutankhamun and Ankesen Amun came, like pilgrims, for the Opet festival. With their arrival, the celebrations could begin. One day, Tutankhamun and Ankesen Amun awoke before the dawn. In the cool darkness, they bathed and cleansed their bodies. Attendants shaved their limbs, removing hairs and any creepy crawlies. Servants anointed the couple with oils, rubbing them down with fragrant scents and purifying mixtures. Then they dressed the king and queen in ceremonial garments. Over the next few days, Tutankhamun and Ankesen Amun would appear in a variety of costumes. These could be elaborate with fancy crowns, sparkling jewellery, and all sorts of adornments. 
So it was going to be a time of great fashion and glittering, splendid glamour. As Tutankhamun and Ankes and Amun dressed, priests would prepare the atmosphere. They would burn incense, a smoky resin made from aromatic woods. The incense, or senetcher, would purify the air and add a touch of the exotic to the proceedings. So as the king and queen dressed, their room filled with the spicy scent of senetcher. With the purification and wardrobe done, it was time to begin the festival. Now, Tutankhamun emerged from his apartments. He left the palace and went to the temple of Karnak. For us, this is where the visual record of the Opet festival begins. In the first image, we see Tutankhamun leaving his palace. He passes a door and comes to the temple of Karnak. Before him, Tutankhamun's welcoming committee awaits. For those reading along in the Chicago publication, this is plate number three. The people who greet Tutankhamun as he enters Karnak are not priests. They are gods. Tall figures of Amun-Ra and Mut stand before the king. Amun wears a short kilt with a long tail attached to the belt. His crown is a flat cap topped with feathers or plumes. At his chin, Amun wears a beard. He holds a symbol of life, Ankh, in his right hand, and a tall scepter, Was, in his left. Behind Amun, the goddess Mut stands proud. She wears a long, form-fitting dress with straps over the chest. Her breasts are bare, and she wears a long wig that hangs down over the back and shoulders. In some images, Mut wears her special crown, the red and white crown of southern and northern Egypt. So Mut is a lady of the two lands, a goddess of Egypt's great kingdom. Mut and Amun-Ra greet Tutankhamun. The king emerges from his palace in a simple costume. He wears a short white kilt folded over his legs and groin. His chest is bare. In his left hand, Tutankhamun grips a pair of scepters, the crook and the flail, symbols of his kingship. On his head, the pharaoh sports an elaborate crown, a tall white cap with a feather on either side. The top of this cap spreads out like a papyrus bundle. At the forehead, the crown has a cobra, uraeus, and a sun disk. Next to the uraeus, a pair of horns stretch out on either side. These horns are important symbols, related to the rituals that are about to begin. The horns are long and wavy. They seem to be the horns of a ram. Tutankhamun wears a pair of ram's horns on his crown. Now, there is some important religious symbolism here. Long story short, Egyptian rulers, and Amun himself, used the motif of rams, or male sheep, as an expression of their power. The power of physical strength, and the power of fertility. After all, rams are particularly useful for increasing the herd. So fertility, conception, was a powerful symbol for the gods and the king. I will talk about that another time in future festivals. For now, it is enough to know that Tutankhamun wore a crown invoking the symbols of a ram. Thus, he started the festival as a being of strength and fertility. That set the tone for things to come. Tutankhamun entered Karnak and made his way to the shrines of Amun. 
First, the young king passed through the massive gateways, the pylons of Karnak Temple. He made his way east, past gates, obelisks, and halls. He crossed courts, large open spaces, bathed in the pre-dawn gloom. As he walked, Tutankhamun headed deeper into the sanctuary of Karnak. As you can imagine, the shrines of Amun-Ra were located in the most secluded part of the temple. They were inaccessible to most people, a place of mystery and ritual. These shrines would be the starting point of the Opet festival. Tutankhamun headed east, past the gates and monuments. Eventually, he came to a huge rectangular building, a special hall where the statue of Amun-Ra lived. Tutankhamun approached a monument called Ak Menu. This was a festival hall containing the shrines of Amun-Ra and other deities. The Ak Menu, or Most Excellent of Monuments, was a product of Tutankhamun's ancestor, the legendary king Tutmose III. Tutmose III had built fabulous monuments for Amun-Ra. His name appeared throughout Karnak and other temples of the land. But Tutmose's best monument, his most enduring, was the Ak Menu. This lavish hall in the heart of Karnak provided a home for Amun-Ra. So this may be the place where Opet started. The Ark Menu is still standing today. You can visit it. The hall is well preserved with some of its original paint and colours. You can see the places that Tutankhamun would have walked. And you can see the shrines of Amun that he would have visited. It is kind of amazing. Tutankhamun walked in procession through the halls of Ark Menu. Incense swirled in the air, and priests burned the scented oils. Sandals scuffed on the floor, echoing from the walls and the ceiling high above. Chanting and sistra rattles resonated in the cavernous temple. Drums, drums in the deep. The procession passed through doors and passages. They followed a twisting path deeper into Akmenu. The stone walls grew closer and closer as they passed from great halls to secret shrines. Finally, the ruler came to Amun's hidden sanctum. The god sat in a golden statue in a small room or naos. His statue gleamed in the light of lamps. His face was smooth, serene, the image of divine satisfaction. Now, the rituals could begin. The artistic scenes now move to the heart of Karnak Temple. In the decorations showing this festival, we see Tutankhamun worshipping Amun-Ra. Pharaoh stands before the shrines and images of the god. Tutankhamun wears an elaborate kilt, a bare chest, and the blue crown. With one hand, he raises a jug in the shape of an ankh, life. From this ankh, the king pours water, cleansing the ground before Amun's shrine. For those following along, this scene is plate number five. Tutankhamun pours water from the Ankh. With the other hand, he raises a long scepter. This piece looks like a golden rod with a falcon head at one end and a hand at the other. In the hand, the scepter has a lamp for burning incense. So Tutankhamun raises a golden rod to burn the sacred materials. Coincidentally, this type of incense burner does survive. We have physical examples salvaged from archaeological sites. You can see some examples of these on the podcast website. One of them 
looks exactly like the item that Tutankhamun is using. So these tools were real. The king and the priests wielded items like this in ritual. Anyway, the king stands in his regalia before the shrine of Amun. Just in front of Tutankhamun, a series of tables hold all sorts of lovely offerings. Bread, flowers, cooked poultry, and cuts of meat. The king presents a lavish picnic for Amun-Ra, and the hieroglyphs give a sense of the offerings in progress. The texts are damaged, but they seem to say, quote, Burning incense and making a liquid offering to Amun-Ra, lord of the thrones of the two lands. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb-Keperu-Ra, Tutankhamun, given life like Ra, and beloved of Amun-Ra. The protection of all life surrounds the king like Ra forever and ever. The king offers for the god ten red vessels, one butcher's knife, one animal leg, one cut of meat, and the rest is lost. End quote. Basically, Tutankhamun gave meat, food, drink, and useful items to the god. He burned incense to cleanse the air. He poured water to cleanse the ground. The king of Egypt spoke before Amun-Ra, the king of the gods. And in return, the great deity gave Tutankhamun protection, life, and all good things. It was a good start to the ceremony. Having made offerings to Amun-Ra, Tutankhamun could begin the procession. The king had honoured Amun, foremost of all deities. Now, it was time to visit some others. The next part of the ritual involved some light carrying. The priests would enter the sanctuary and lift the shrine of Amun. The god's statue sat on a wood and gold bark. A bark is a sacred boat. They can be small or large. The basic idea is that a bark is a vessel for gods and holy images. So Amun's statue sat on a small boat. The priests would lift this boat to transport the god. The bark shrine had a useful feature, a series of poles underneath the bark stuck out to either side. The priests would lift these poles onto their shoulders, dispersing the weight of the shrine among the group. So many hands made light work. The god Amun could ride in splendour on the shoulders of his priests. The bark itself was a gift from Tutankhamun. From his royal decrees, we know that the king commissioned a new bark shrine for Amun-Ra. Tutankhamun claimed that he had made the bark larger than ever before. It had 13 carrying poles, making it the largest bark ever produced, according to the king. So even the boat of Amun was a gift from Tutankhamun. The god travelled in style, thanks to the pharaoh. Tutankhamun and Amun-Ra left the Ark Menu and headed for other shrines. With that, the first chapter of Opet was complete. If you need to take a break, this is a good place to do so. Otherwise, let's crack on. Chapter 3 The priests lifted the bark of Amun. On the portable shrine, the god's statue swayed, then settled in place. The procession could begin. 
Tutankhamun, Amun-Ra, and the priests would leave the Akhmenu and make their way to other sanctuaries in Karnak. They had honoured Amun-Ra, the king of the gods. Now they would visit Amun's family. In the next phase of the celebration, Tutankhamun would awaken Mut and Khonsu. These were the wife and son of Amun, and they had their own sanctuaries within the Karnak area. Khonsu's shrine is in the southwestern corner of the Karnak enclosure. The temple of Mut is a bit further south, so as the procession got underway, the king may have visited Khonsu first. Tutankhamun, Amun-Ra, and the priests came to greet Khonsu. This god appeared as a young human male. He was youthful, a child, and he wore a lock of hair on one side. In his hands, Khonsu held a variety of symbols. The crook and flail of kingship, the jed pillar, or stability, and the scepter called was, dominion. So Khonsu was a divine child with kingly power. He was kind of the equivalent of Tutankhamun. The pharaoh and his priests made offerings to Khonsu, and as he awoke, the great god spoke to the king. In Tutankhamun's images of the Opet festival, we get a short speech from the deity. Khonsu says, quote, My beloved son, lord of the two lands, Tutankhamun, how beautiful is this monument that you have made for me. I have given to you an eternity as king of the two lands, and everlastingness upon the throne of Horus. Every foreign land is beneath your feet, like your father, Ra, every day. End quote. Khonsu, the child god, greeted young Tutankhamun. He gave the pharaoh the gift of long life and power over all lands. Like the sun high in the sky, Tutankhamun would rule all peoples on the earth. A good gift, all things considered. With those offerings complete, Khonsu prepared for his journey. Once again, the god's statue would travel by bark, a sacred boat carried by the priests. So, as the procession resumed, there were now two gods moving on their boats. Next, the procession headed out of Karnak. The priests followed a road that headed south. So in this part of the festival, the king and worshippers we're moving away from Karnak itself and slowly heading towards Luxor Temple. As they walked, the parade would pass between two enormous gates, the seventh pylon, built by Thutmose III, and the eighth pylon, by King Hatshepsut. Both gates featured enormous pylon towers. The walls bore images of pharaohs smiting their enemies and offering to the gods. So, as Tutankhamun and the statues made their procession, the faces of great rulers gazed upon them. This was significant. As Tutankhamun honoured Amun-Ra, he also celebrated the kings that had made Amun great. From a certain point of view, the Opet festival was a celebration of kingship, just as much as the gods. Heading south, the parade made its way to a small but splendid temple. The House of Mut sat in its own precinct. Surrounded by high walls, this temple sat on a mound overlooking a lake. The lake is called Asheru, and it surrounded the Temple of Mut on three sides. Asheru and the Mut precinct was a sacred space, a symbol of the ancient waters that came before the universe. 
Once again, the Temple of Mut is still standing, sort of, and the Lake of Asheru is visible to this day. Now, the sacred lake is unkempt and overgrown with reeds. That might seem sad, but it is kind of fitting. The lake is a symbol of creation, so as those reeds grow tall, they remind us of the fertility that these gods created. Now, Moot's sacred lake may seem overgrown, but there may be some value to that, symbolically. Anyway. The king and his priests brought the statues of Amun-Ra and Khonsu to the temple of Mut. Once again, they entered the shrine of the goddess and made offerings to her image. Mut appeared as a human woman, although she could also be a lioness. Mut wore a long wig and a crown of kingship, so she is a royal deity, a lady of the utmost power. Mut, in her own temple, was an essential part of the festival. Once again, the Opet imagery gives us a glimpse at Moot's interaction with the pharaoh. Tutankhamun lights incense for the goddess, and she responds to his piety. Hieroglyphs in this scene record a speech from Moot to the king. The goddess, in her sacred bark, addresses young Tutankhamun. Quote, My son, Tutankhamun, I have given to you all life, stability, and dominion under me. I have given to you all joy under me. I have given to you all health under me. I have given to you all valor or courage under me. End quote. Like Khonsu before, Moot praised the young pharaoh. She honored Tutankhamun, for he had made Karnak splendid once more. The pharaoh had shown his favor to the gods, and Moot blessed Tutankhamun with life, stability, and dominion over all things. He would be happy, healthy, and brave under her protection. Again, a good gift, all things considered. Tutankhamun finished the offerings for Mut. By now, the Opet festival was in full swing. The gods had awoken and received their offerings. In return, they had given Tutankhamun their blessings. Amun-Ra, Mut, and Khonsu had bestowed life and power on the young pharaoh of Egypt. In the next chapter the king and gods would leave the sacred precinct. They would make their way towards the temple of Luxor. The secret offerings were done. The public ceremonies were about to begin. Tutankhamun and his priests were going to bring the gods before the people. The priests lifted the barks and the parade got underway. The gods would travel in style accompanied by music and incense. We see this in the images that Tutankhamun recorded. For those reading along, we are now at plates number 12 and 14. As the portable shrines, or barks, left Karnak, the grand procession began. First, a group of people went ahead to clear the road and make way. Then, a musician led the parade itself. At the front of the procession, we see a drummer leading the march. He wears a long strap around his neck, from which hangs a wide, barrel-shaped instrument. This drum is called a kemkem. You can kind of guess how it sounded from the name. The man played this kemkem with both hands. Presumably, he beat a steady rhythm for the priests to march. After all, you don't want the gods' shrines to wobble or move randomly. A nice drum beat would keep everyone in time. After the drummer came the priests and the shrines. Each bark moved in procession, 
First, the bark of Amun-Ra, then the bark of Khonsu, third, the bark of Moot, and finally, a special bark for the king himself. More on that later in the episode. So as the parade got underway, we see four shrines moving in the procession. Ahead of the shrines, priests would cleanse the road. First, one priest would anoint and purify the way. Just ahead of the shrines, we see a man pouring milk onto the ground. Milk was important. It symbolised fertility and nourishment, as in mother's milk. It symbolised renewal and new life, babies and so forth. And it symbolised energy, as in food. So the gods sailed on milk. I guess that made their road the Milky Way. The procession left Karnak Temple. The drummer beat a rhythm, the priests sprinkled milk, and they burned incense. The bark shrines of Amun, Mut, Konsu, and the king made their way, one after another, along the road. At this point, they were heading west. They were going to the River Nile. In the next scene, we see the gods travel by boat. Originally, the Opet festival travelled by land, but in the days of Tutankhamun, the gods went by river. So the young king led his procession out of Karnak towards the Nile. There, the portable shrines would board enormous boats. For those reading along, we now move to Plate 16. Tutankhamun's fleet set sail, heading up the river. This scene is damaged, but archaeologists have reconstructed it. In a lavish mural, we see the royal fleet sailing on the Nile. The king's barge leads the way. This was an enormous vessel with a large cabin, two stories tall. The ship had a tall mast and a broad sail, painted red like the sun. The king's vessel had a name, Sehetep Necheru. This translates as satisfying the gods. So the royal ship leading the fleet extolled the virtues of Tutankhamun as a pious ruler. Basically, every element of the procession, from the tools to the conveyance, worked together to reflect the honour of the deities. Behind the king's boats, each god travelled in their own individual ship. First, the barge of Amun. As you can guess, this was massive. Amun's ship was as large as the pharaoh's. The boat of Amun had a tall shrine amidships, in which the god's statue sat in splendour. Curtains of linen shielded Amun from the world, but in the light of the morning, you could probably see the statue through the curtain. So the god was hidden, but still visible. To those watching this fleet, it was a rare chance to see Amun-Ra. Behind the boat of Amun, the vessels of Mut and Konsu followed. They were smaller, but still ornate. They glittered with gold and gems, and they proceeded in a beautiful fleet up the River Nile. Now, the way they travelled is interesting. You see, Tutankhamun's ship had a sail. It could go upriver under its own power. But the barges of Amun, Mut, and Konsu did not have sails. So, going against the current, they needed help. Below the ships, the artistic scenes show a group of men. They are labourers marching along the riverbank. There are many of them, and this group all hold long ropes. The labourers clutch ropes that stretch from the land to the ships. 
Apparently, the men are hauling the gods' ships against the current. The labourers march along the riverbank. This would have brought them close to the people, the public, who are watching the procession. So, naturally, there is protection. Alongside the labourers, we see a company of soldiers. Troops march in lines, armed with shields and axes. They guard the labourers as they pull the ships of the gods. Also, the soldiers protect the deities and the king, and disperse the crowd. This honour guard are well-groomed, with pristine kilts and wigs. Their axes are sharp. They are ready for anything. As the labourers haul on the ropes, hieroglyphs add an interesting feature. It seems that they were singing as they did their work. The song is addressed to Amun-Ra, king of the gods, and it praises Tutankhamun. It is long, so I won't read the whole thing, but just for a taste, the men sing something along these lines. Quote, O Amun-Ra, when you are in the barge called Mighty of Prow, you appear beautifully. Everyone gives praise to you, the whole land being in festival, while your eldest son, the king, carries you to Opet. May you, Amun, set the king's lifetime to be like the duration of the sky, that he, Tutankhamun, might appear like the sun disk within it. May your hearts be pleased, O land of Egypt, at seeing Amun at rest in his Opet. End quote. The soldiers and the labourers sing for Amun and for Tutankhamun. As they do, the artists show the men raising one hand to their mouth. It looks like they're blowing kisses, but this is the way Egyptians show speech or singing in art. If a person raises a hand to their mouth, it indicates that they are speaking or singing. So as the men haul ropes, they let out a song for Amun and the king. The great ships plied the waters. The gods sailed on the Nile. The king led Amun, Mut, and Konsu in grand procession. On the riverbanks, a company of soldiers and labourers guided the journey. Chapter 4 On a warm day in September, the Nile River gleamed with gold. The sun lit the waters, and stately boats shone with metal ornaments and trimmings. The sails of ships fluttered, their fabric dyed red like the sun. On the boats... Figures of royalty and divinity shone in splendid raiment. The king of Egypt, Tutankhamun, and the king of the gods, Amun-Ra, were sailing in procession. The Opet festival was at its public height. Chances are the royal boats were not the only vessels on the Nile. We can imagine that everyone who owned a ship might go down on the river to watch the great barges. Small papyrus skiffs or larger sailboats People of all wealth and social classes might crowd together to see the king, the queen, and the gods. As the great ships sailed, they were accompanied by a massive procession. Previously, I described the work of the labourers and soldiers. But as these men did their task, other groups marched in the parade. In the artistic scenes, we also find well-dressed men and women among the crowd. These are priests and priestesses who come in celebration of the deities. In the art, the priestesses lead the way. 
A group of women wearing long dresses or robes march ahead. Their hair is long over the shoulders, like the goddess Mut. They hold instruments in each hand. In the right, the priestesses shake rattles, or sistra. In the left, they clutch a string of beads with a metal clapper called a menat. Used together, the menat beads and sistra rattles created a shimmering ambience that echoed across the river. Once again, objects like these survive from archaeological sites. We have sistra rattles and menat necklaces, just like those that the priestesses use. They come from different places, different times, but they are the same basic instruments. If you're interested, you can see images of them on the podcast website. So the priestesses play their instruments. Behind them, the priests join the chorus. A group of men follow the priestesses. Their heads are bald, probably shaved. They wear long kilts down to their knees, and their chests are bare. Unlike the priestesses, these men do not carry instruments. Instead, they raise their hands to clap. The priests clap a rhythm to keep a beat on the march. Their hands give the percussion for the instruments of the women. So the two groups are working in tandem. With different tools and different sounds, they created a chorus of celebration. Of course, all this music needs lyrics. And like the soldiers and labourers, we find the religious officials singing. Above the priestesses and priests, a line of hieroglyphs records another song. Apparently, the two groups sing together, adding their voices to the instruments. Their words are as follows. Quote, the chorus of those who give the rhythm while conveying the river barge. They say, O Amun-Ra, lord of the thrones of the two lands, may you live forever. A drinking place is carved, and the sky is folded back to the south. A drinking place is carved, and the sky is folded back to the north. This is done so that the sailors of Neb Keperu-Ra, Tutankhamun, may drink. Hail Amun-Ra, ancient one of the two lands, in your glorious appearance amidst your fleet, in your beautiful festival of Opet, may you be pleased with it. A drinking place is built for the entourage, which is in the best ship of them all. The paths are bound up for you. A great inundation, or flood, is raised up. End quote. The religious officials sing about drinking. They speak of making a place for drink, or messware, and they describe a grand party in honour of the gods. As the Nile flood rises high and the river is at its peak, the boats sail on the gods' gift, so the king, the deities, and all in attendance may take a drink and enjoy the beautiful festival. With all of this noise, the singing of the labourers, the chanting of the clergy, the rattle of the sistra, the rhythm of the clapping, and the beat of the drum, you can imagine that the Opet festival was a magnificent spectacle. A cacophony of sounds would fill the air, cross the river, and echo off the walls of the temples. As the sun shone down, lighting the river to gold, hundreds of people joined in celebration of the divine. Add a bit of alcohol, and the procession probably got quite rowdy. The king's barge, Sehetep Necheru, and the barge of Amun, Usurhat, sailed along the river. Gold glittered, music filled the air 
and the celebration was in full swing. We can imagine Tutankhamun, 17 years old, sitting aboard his ship. He was young, but capable, and he was performing his duties for the gods. Wearing the best regalia, surrounded by officials and priests, the pharaoh of Egypt led his people in celebration. The Opet festival was the largest party of the year. Tutankhamun, a teenage pharaoh, was in the heart of it. The ships plied the waters, the gods sailed the Nile, the king led Amun, Mut, and Khonsu in grand celebration. On the riverbanks, soldiers, labourers, priests, priestesses, musicians, and all the public watched the enormous party. For those who need it, this is a good place to take a break. We can leave the ships riding on the Nile and catch up with them when they arrive at their destination. So I will see you for the next chapter. Allow the music to fill your heart, take a drink, and enjoy a happy day in the light of the sun. May the blessings of Amun shine down upon you. Chapter 5. On a cool morning in September, a great fleet sailed on the Nile Valley. The ships of the pharaoh, the queen, of Amun-Ra, Mut, and Khonsu were riding upriver from Karnak to Luxor Temple. The great ships sailed two kilometres to the south. Not very far, but going upriver, and with men hauling the barges from the riverbank, this journey may have taken a while. By the time they reached their destination, the workers were probably exhausted. The officials, priests and priestesses, were hoarse from singing, and many people may have been a little bit drunk. A good day, so far. Eventually, the ships returned to the bank. They had arrived at their destination, the Temple of Luxor. Luxor Temple, or Ipet Reshit, was the centre of the festival. Here, the most secret rituals would take place. The king and the gods would renew their holy power. The gods pulled up at the docks next to Luxor Temple. Today, this area is a stone corniche or boulevard, but the waterfront still has many docks for boats. The cruise ships and felucca tie up here, and you can catch the ferry across the Nile at this spot. So the riverbank of Luxor Temple looks different, but the business has not changed that much. It is still a busy place where people board ships for daily work and to visit the great temples. So, there is continuity. Anyway, the boats of Tutankhamun, Amun-Ra, Ankesanamun, Mut, and Khonsu landed at the quay. The great ships and the royal couple discharged their cargo. The sacred bark shrines carried by priests left the water and returned to the land. Surprisingly, One of these barks did not come ashore. The bark of the king, the shrine for Tutankhamun's statue, does not show up in the art of this phase. It seems like this bark stayed on the royal ship. The significance of that is slightly unclear. Scholars like Lanny Bell suggest that from this point, 
the king's spirit, or ka, had merged with the statue of Amun. So while sailing up the river, the god's statue had become a symbol of the deity and of the pharaoh. There is some debate about that, but it is possible that in this fifth chapter of Opet, the king and Amun were unifying as one being. So as the main part of the festival began, Tutankhamun was ascending to a new status. His spirit, his ka, was merging with that of Amun. The king of Egypt and the king of the gods were combining spiritually into one force. Maybe. The procession now came to Luxor Temple. For those reading along, the following scenes occur on plate 35. As the bark shrines left the ships, a welcoming committee came to greet them. From the gates of Luxor, priests came forth to honour the gods. We see them as they present tables of offerings, food and drink on either side of the road. And to add some liveliness, performers come out to dance and celebrate. We see priestesses shaking their sistra and menat necklaces. Again, they create that rattling chorus to catch the gods' attention. We also find that drummer leading the parade and beating the rhythms on his kem-kem instrument. Then we get a new feature. A group of gymnasts come forth. Ahead of the musicians, we now see a group of acrobats. These are all women, and they perform feats of skill. The women stand with feet on the ground, then they arch their spines to place their hands on the ground as well. They bend backwards, as if they are halfway through a backwards roll or somersault. So these performers seem to be gymnasts, showing their flexibility and skills in honour of the gods. Unfortunately, the hieroglyphs of this section are lost, so we don't know the words that accompanied the performers, but their skill is clear, and they add a touch of movement, vitality, to the procession. Now, we come to the scenes involving sacrifice. In the next part of the rituals, we see the offerings of meat that the priests prepared. If you want to skip this, you can fast forward about two minutes. I'll give you a second to do that. The procession left the river and approached the temple of Luxor. Musicians, priests, and performers did their job to welcome the deities. Also, a group of butchers plied their trade. In the lower part of this scene, we find a group of men. They are preparing meat from sacrificial bulls. The butchers are preparing this meat live, so to speak. We see the men armed with ropes and axes. They wrestle the bulls to the ground. The priests subdue the beasts, and then they cut into the flanks with long knives. To the left, we see the butchers carrying away legs and organs. They dismember the bulls, producing choice cuts of meat. Below this, we see another group of priests making tables of offerings. Among the foodstuffs, we see the legs and the cuts from those bulls. Some of the priests bring lamps to set the food on fire. Burning offerings, transforming them into smoke, would help send the essence of the meat to the gods. Chances are, it also made the temple smell richly of burnt flesh. The scene is damaged, fragmentary, so we cannot tell how many animals they killed. But the surviving images show at least seven bulls going to the slaughter. That number could be much higher, though. Other temples from different kings provide lists of the offerings that they gave in the festivals. Sometimes there could be hundreds of animals. 
So these events may have been quite bloody, especially from the perspective of the bulls. Today, such practices may seem shocking, but this is a reality of ancient worship. The gods needed food, and that came from many sources. For the Egyptians, the offerings of meat were valuable symbols of their piety and devotion. They would nourish the gods and give them great energy. Also, that meat was useful. After the event, priests would distribute the cooked meat to worshippers and to the people. For some, the Opet festival may have been a rare source of expensive protein. Chapter 6 The Opet festival reached its climax in the halls of Luxor Temple. The great sanctuary was another home for Amun-Ra. Here, the god Amun appeared as Amun of Opet, and the rituals that happened in this shrine were intimately connected with the god and the king. As Tutankhamun approached Luxor Temple, he was embarking on a sacred and secret process. In the next section, we see king and gods inside Luxor. For those reading along, these events appear on plate 43. The bark shrines of Amun, Mut, and Khonsu arrive at the sanctuary. Tutankhamun comes before the gods to give offerings and prayers. This part of the scene was unfinished when Tutankhamun died, so these days we see the version that other, later kings completed. But the gist is probably similar. The pharaoh, Tutankhamun, or someone else, would give food, drink, and praise to the great deities. In return, they gave him power and authority. Around the king, we see tall staffs, or staves. These are emblems of powerful gods. We see a staff for Amun, for Mut, a staff for Geb, the earth god, a staff for Wepwawet, the guardian of the cemeteries, Osiris, king of the dead, and a staff for the king himself. Each of these symbols has a hieroglyphic text recording the speech of the deities. As a little sample, here are some of the things they say. Quote, From the staff of Amun, I have given you, Tutankhamun, the lifetime of Ra and the years of Atum. Every foreign land is beneath your feet. From the staff of Mut, I have given to you the kingship of Horus and the power of Shu, air, and Tefnut, moisture. From the staff of Wepwawet, I have given to you, Tutankhamun, valor against the south and victory against the north. The terror of you is within all lands. From the staff of Osiris, I have given to you, Tutankhamun, my office, my place, my throne, my lifetime, and my period of existence upon the earth. From the staff of the king, I have given to you all flat lands, all hill countries, and the nine bows, the enemies of Egypt. End quote. The staffs or scepters speak to the king, offering their blessings and power. That may sound strange. How does a scepter talk? Well, beyond the symbolic aspect of this art, there may be a practical explanation. We could probably imagine priests dressed as each god coming before Tutankhamun. These priests would hold the staffs, they would speak the words of their deity, and give praise to the king. In the art, that gets simplified down to the core symbols, the staffs themselves. But through these rituals, great gods could bless Tutankhamun, and the priests would have a chance to participate. 
That is my speculation, but that could be an explanation for the art. Now we come to the heart of it all. This part of the event is the most secret aspect of the Opet festival. Naturally, the royal artists did not show these rituals when carving the scenes. Instead, the decorations keep it vague. We see the pharaoh offering flowers to the gods, and the bark shrines of Mut and Khonsu rest in the temple. So the true rituals, the secret rites, were left out of the decoration. That makes sense. After all, these things were supposed to be mysterious. Only a few with privileged access could see what happened. Unfortunately, this lack of art or text does cause a problem for Egyptologists. Without images or hieroglyphs, it is hard to say exactly what Opet was about. We can figure out the main events and the general atmosphere. But when the king and Amun-Ra communed in the heart of Luxor Temple, what was actually happening? These things are obscure, and scholars still debate some of the meanings. With that in mind, what I am about to share is a popular hypothesis. It is not certain, by any means, but it is a start. In the 1980s, a scholar named Lanny Bell published a couple of studies on the Opet Festival. Bell's central argument was that the Opet Festival served two functions. First, it renewed the power of the gods. Amun-Ra and his family needed a chance to refresh their magic, reinvigorate their might, and generally revive their powers. So Opet may have served that purpose. Offerings, prayers, and rituals would renew the powers of Amun. The other function may have been for the king. According to Bell, the Opet festival may have bridged the gap between a living ruler and his ancestors. Every pharaoh was part of a chain, a long line of monarchs stretching back to the start of their history. So the idea of the kingship, the concept, was powerful. It transcended the individual ruler. The Opet festival may have served to unite the king with his predecessors. Through rituals, and with the help of Amun-Ra, a pharaoh like Tutankhamun could invigorate his royal spirit. That spirit, the Ka, was an essential part of his magic, his power to rule. So every king needed to renew their connection to the Ka of their ancestors, the spirit of kingship as a concept. Basically, a pharaoh may have come to Opet to commune with the gods, with Amun-Ra, and with his predecessors. Tutankhamun, or any king, could join with the eternal essence of royalty. In the heart of Opet, each king became eternal. As I said, some scholars debate this meaning, but in my opinion, it is the best explanation currently available. Future research may change that. For now, it seems like a decent interpretation. The rituals of Opet may have unified the living king with the power of their ancestors. Amun-Ra gave the pharaoh a link to the ka or spirit of kingship itself. Together, the king of Egypt and the king of the gods renewed their sacred powers. The rituals of Opet took place in secluded, hidden spaces. Behind closed doors, the pharaoh communed with Amun-Ra. Together, they and the priests enacted secret rituals. As I said, the records of Tutankhamun's Opet only show the public stuff. Prayers, offerings, processions, and shrines. 
We do not see the sacred rites, so historians must try to reconstruct them from the archaeology and scattered references. It is complicated, and I am indebted to the wonderful scholars who have investigated this material. Whatever happened exactly, Tutankhamun completed his rituals with Amun-Ra. Now, the Opet festival started to move in reverse. The king and the gods had finished their work. Soon, they would depart, returning to the river. They would sail north back to Karnak, back to their homes. At this point, we are heading towards the conclusion of the Opet festival. If you are tired, do not worry, the end is in sight. I have a few more things to talk about, but they are more of the decorative variety. The sacred rituals are mostly done. The purpose of Opet is achieved. Now, we can kick up our feet and enjoy the journey home. Having finished the rituals at Luxor, Tutankhamun and the gods left that temple. Now, the artistic scenes return to the river. We see the ships as they ply the water and sail down towards Karnak Temple. The statues of Amun-Ra, Mut, and Konsu departed Luxor aboard their sacred barks. From here, the artistic images show the procession in reverse. We see the king leaving the temple, the priests following, carrying the barks of the deities. Again, we see people offering gifts and preparing food. The celebrations continue, and as the gods return home, the procession makes another spectacular party. The parade went back to the riverbank and returned to their ships. Again, we see the great fleet riding the waters. This time, the boats are going downriver, following the current, so the labourers do not need to pull them as much. Instead, the ships are accompanied by a huge procession. For those reading along, we are on plate 91. First, we see warriors. Soldiers march by the thousands on the riverbanks. They carry banners, emblems, and wear distinctive costumes. The troops come from a variety of regions. The artists show men with stereotypical costumes of the South and the West, the regions we might call Nubia and Libya. I will describe these troops more in a moment, but first we should understand the symbolism. The army that accompanies the Opet festival is international. It includes troops and soldiers from many different communities. As a result, the pharaoh and the gods show their power over all lands and all peoples. The warriors of Egypt come from many backgrounds, but they all serve Amun-Ra and Tutankhamun. So we are seeing a kind of flex. The king of Egypt is not an isolated local monarch. He is international, universal, like the sun. His power crosses all horizons. His splendor shines on many communities. As a result, warriors from different lands serve him obediently. The basic idea is that Egypt is not just a kingdom, it is an empire, and the people who serve it are many. To drive this point home, the hieroglyphs record yet another song. This third song is quite long, so I'll just give a small portion. The song proclaims how Tutankhamun, king of Egypt, is a perfect ruler. He has honoured the great god Amun-Ra, and in return... Amun gives victory over all lands. Briefly, the song of the soldiers goes like this. Quote, the vanguard of the army proclaims before his majesty. How prosperous is the perfect ruler. He is in front of Amun, conveying him to Karnak in his annual festival. He, Tutankhamun, does that which pleases his father in the noble Opet. 
Amun has received the king's offering. The lifetime of Ra and the years of Atum have been decreed for him, the king. He is rewarded with millions of years, countless said festivals. All foreign lands are beneath his feet, like Ra every day. End quote. The soldiers of all lands sing in praise of Tutankhamun. The king's piety brings the blessings of Amun and Ra. Pharaoh will enjoy a long life with many said festivals. He will rule over all lands like the sun shining on the earth. That's pretty standard stuff. We've heard it before. But these songs and texts do convey an important point. In the days of Tutankhamun, the rulers of Egypt looked outwards. They saw a wide world beyond their borders, and they were happy to include people from that world, as long as the pharaoh was in charge. The soldiers march, singing in praise of Amun and Tutankhamun. They carry their banners, and some of them play instruments. The troops are mainly foot soldiers, infantry, and marines. But we also see a couple of chariots. Elegant war carts for the king and queen ride along with the soldiers. The drivers guide the horses through the crowd. The chariots are empty, by which I mean the king and queen are on their boats. But apparently... While the royal couple were on the river, their drivers raced to bring their chariots to Karnak. It's a small detail, but I quite like it. You can imagine the charioteers guiding their horses through the crowd. They shout at people to get out of the way, and they curse at the enormous throng that crowds the road. As they ride, the drivers keep a nervous eye on the river, making sure they are well ahead of the king's boat. Eventually, the charioteers reach Karnak, and they race to the dock to receive the king and queen. It's a tiny little image, but it's fun, amidst all the pomp. So the royal fleet sailed down the Nile towards Karnak. Along the way, the riverbanks crowded with musicians, dancers, religious officials, and soldiers. Warriors from different lands marched in honour of the pharaoh and the god Amun. From the south, the west, and the two lands of Egypt... A vast army accompanied the parade. It must have been an incredible spectacle. There are many little details in this scene. I wish I could discuss everything. But time really is pressing. If you are interested, you can find these lovely images in the official publication, in the artistic plates numbered 91 to 99. I've provided a couple of examples on the podcast website. For now, let us move on. We are coming at last to the end. We are so close. And if you have listened this far, I applaud your stamina. It is time for a quick break so that the fleet can tie up at the docks. The soldiers can rest their throats from all that singing. And the chariot drivers can reach Karnak on time. While everyone gets ready for the final push, we will catch our breath. See you in a moment. Chapter 7. In the last stages of the Oped festival, 
the royal fleet tied up at the docks of Karnak. The bark shrines, carrying the god's statues, disembarked, and their priests carried them towards the gates. The king and queen left their ships and rode on splendid chariots to the temple. From here, the procession went in reverse to its earlier order. The gods would return one by one to their shrines. First, the great lady Mut, Mother Supreme, would go to her temple at Asheru. We see the bark of Mut riding on the shoulders of priests, and hieroglyphs record the event. According to the text, the return journey included even more blessings from the goddess. This time, Mut gave her love and gifts to the pharaoh. Quote, Making a good journey by the king, the rowing of his mother, Mut, lady of the sky, during her annual festival, when she is in the entourage of the lord of the gods, Amun, in his festival of Opet. Mut, the great one, lady of Asheru, lady of the sky, mistress of the gods. She says, O my beloved son of my body, lord of the two lands, Tutankhamun, I am your mother, who created your beauty. I suckled you when you were a baby. I have placed the fear of you among the enemies of Egypt. I do this as reward for this perfect monument that you have made for me. End quote. As she sailed back to Karnak, the mother goddess gave her blessings to the pharaoh. She praised Tutankhamun and rewarded his piety. So as the gods made their way home, the young ruler enjoyed their favor. These texts may seem repetitive, and they are, but each one includes small differences and details. Here, Mut causes the enemies of Egypt, the Nine Bows, to tremble in fear of Tutankhamun. So the mother goddess, who nourished the king, would also attack his enemies. Mut is a good deity to have on your side. Next, the young Khonsu returned to his temple. The son of Mut and Amun, Khonsu rejoiced in the celebrations. Like Mut, he gave his blessings to the pharaoh, and hieroglyphs record it. It is pretty much the same speech. Khonsu gives a long life, stability, endurance, and great power to young Tutankhamun. Finally, the bark shrines passed the gates of Karnak, the third pylon. The gods would return one by one to their secret homes. Tutankhamun made offerings. The priests and priestesses sang hymns for the deities. Then, at long last, the procession came to its end. As each statue went back into its shrine, Tutankhamun closed the doors. The golden images of Amun, Mut, and Khonsu returned to their silent, darkened homes. They would remain there until the next major festival. For the general population, the end of Opet was the last time they would see the gods for a while. For the next six months, the golden statues would remain behind closed doors. They would emerge again for a celebration called the Beautiful Feast of the Valley, but that was about six months away. So for the average person, they only glimpsed the divine statues a couple times a year. It was a special occasion, a rare chance to see the gods. At long last, the Opet procession came to its end. The festival itself would continue for several more days. The priests would make offerings and distribute food, beer, and all good things to the populace. So the party would carry on. But as the shrines closed, the core part of the festival was done. Tutankhamun had renewed his power and the power of the gods. 
For another year, the king and deities would have the strength to rule and protect Egypt. The pharaoh had united with his father, Amun-Ra, and his ancestors, the many kings of the two lands. Now, the people could look forward to another year of prosperity. Thanks to the Opet festival, the gods would surely bless the next inundation. The floodwaters would soon recede, leaving the fields black and fertile. The people would return to their farms, and the cycle of growth would begin anew. At the end of Opet, the fertility of Egypt was assured. Thus, its society, and its ruler, would endure another year. The Opet festival was larger than I could ever describe. For one thing, the entire celebration took many days to complete. In the late 18th dynasty, the Opet festival probably lasted for 11 days or so. That was slightly longer than an Egyptian week, which was 10 days. So the celebrations in Karnak and Luxor temples were enormous, a party unlike any other. This party had many functions. There was the religious angle, of course, celebrate the gods and guarantee their blessings, but festivals like these could also serve mundane functions as well. For one thing, the Opet festival, and all festivals, were a great opportunity for feasting. The priests would offer the food and drink to the deities, but then they would share that food amongst themselves and the people. Bread, beer, vegetables, and meat would flow out of the temples to feed the crowd of worshippers. So when we see tables piled with offerings, we are also getting a look at food distribution. That may not sound glamorous, but it was important. The ancient diet was poorer than many societies today. Meat was a rare treat, and a festival was a good chance to enjoy some tasty protein. Likewise, all of that beer, relatively low in alcohol and high in carbohydrates, was good energy, and vegetables from royal estates could provide essential nutrients. So a festival was healthy. The free food, some of it quite expensive, was a boost to the immune systems. Not to mention that mental boost that people would get from eating blessed foods. The spiritual effect of consuming items with magical or divine blessings? That could be substantial for those who believed. Today, we look at these things with a detached modern view, but it is important to remember that religious belief, in some forms, can be a powerful stimulant to mental well-being. So when the locals and the pilgrims came to Opet, they may have walked away with full bellies, full hearts, and a happy spirit. These events are not just historical curiosities. For the participants, they were among the most important events in the calendar. Personally, I love the idea of these festivals. I wish my own society had more of them. Whatever your personal beliefs, the joy of a festival can be powerful. An opportunity to gather with your neighbours and take part in a communal experience. You can enjoy fine foods from sources that you may not taste very often. You can dance to new music, meet new people, and find joy in the community you share. For the ancient Egyptians, the Opet festival was one of these experiences. A moment when the hardship of daily life gave way to enormous celebration. So that is the big picture of the Opet festival. We have covered the events and discussed their significance. The Opet festival is not dead, not really, and I will explain why in the future. For now, let's bring this long episode to its close.
1336 BCE, the pharaoh Tutankhamun sailed from his palace in the north to the great southern city. He went to Waset, Thebes or Luxor, to participate in the great annual festival. Opet, the celebration of Amun, would be an extravagant party on behalf of the gods and of the king. Tutankhamun would lead Opet, and in the process, he would achieve several things that were fundamental to the Egyptian world. First, the king would honour the gods, Amun-Ra, Mut, and Khonsu. He would praise them, give them offerings, and celebrate their power. By doing this, Tutankhamun would renew the gods' strength. After another year, they were tired. They needed a party. So the pharaoh would give Amun, Mut, and Khonsu what they needed. As a result, the gods' energy would revive, and they would be strong for another year to come. Secondly, the king would participate in secret rituals. We do not know exactly what these were, but the best explanation, for now, is that Tutankhamun would unite with Amun-Ra, and the king would unite with the spirit, or Ka, of his ancestors. The living pharaoh would commune with the Ka of all kings, those that had come before. In doing so, Tutankhamun would renew his place in the long line of rulers. He would affirm his position as the living Horus of Egypt. Finally, the gods would bless Tutankhamun with their own gifts. The young pharaoh would enjoy a long life, many said festivals, and victory over all foreign lands. Tutankhamun, the son of Amun-Ra, would receive power from that god. Thanks to Opet, the king of Egypt would rule all lands for many years to come. So as Tutankhamun, all of 17 years old, participated in another Opet festival, we can wonder what he felt. Was he jubilant, energised by the power of these rituals? Was he anxious or afraid of the burdens placed upon him? Was he arrogant or cynical, finding all the pomp a bit embarrassing? We will never know what went through the king's head. If I had to guess, I would say the main things on his mind were a heady mixture of beer, wine, and a thick cloud of incense. It is possible that Tutankhamun, the teenage pharaoh, experienced Opet as a whirling muddle, an endless wave of prayers, hymns, offerings, and rituals. The king would march until his feet were sore in the endless processions. He would sit in full view of the public on long boat rides. He would change his costume a dozen times, perhaps, as each phase of the celebration occurred. In the end, I would not be surprised if Tutankhamun felt that Opet was a bit of a blur. But then, the young pharaoh could return to his palace and his apartments. Maybe he was exhausted, or maybe he was riding high on adrenaline and pageantry. Again, we do not know. The nuances of his personality are lost to time. But as the sun set on the day of procession, the son of Ra, the king of Egypt, could rest in comfort. He had completed one of the most important rituals of the year. For the next twelve months, Amun, Mut, and Khonsu would give their blessings to the land. The fertility of Egypt was in Tutankhamun's hands, and he had renewed his country. I hope he felt good.
Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode came from Keith Zizzer, Jeffrey Goodman, and Luke Chaos. My special thanks to these artists for sharing their compositions with me and permitting me to use them in the show. Folks, please consider supporting these artists and their work. Follow the links in the episode description to learn more about their music. You can find them on Spotify, Apple, and the web. They deserve your support. Also, I should probably mention that if you like the music I use, a lot of it appears on a special Spotify playlist. A while ago, I put together a playlist of music related to ancient Egypt. It is several hours long and makes for good background listening while reading or working. I use the playlist myself when writing episodes like this. So, if you enjoy the sounds of ancient Egypt, that playlist may serve you well. Again, link in the description. Finally, I must thank several people. Firstly, thank you for listening all the way through. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Opet and its events. I enjoyed writing the story and getting in touch with the mystical side of my personality. Also, I must thank Linda, Terry, TJ, Jason, Kendra, Evan, and Kyla. These fine folks have made the ultimate offering. They joined the Patreon as priest-level supporters. In other words... The bark shrines of Amun-Ra, of Mut and Khonsu, and that of the king, ride on their shoulders. These fine folks sprinkle the milk, burn the incense, wave the fans, and raise their voices in praise of the gods. To Linda, Terry, TJ, Jason, Kendra, Evan, and Kyla, thank you kindly. The next episode will arrive in two weeks. I still have a bit of PhD work to complete, and this episode was a massive undertaking. So, bear with me. I will see you in a fortnight. Next time, we touch on a subject that we did not get to talk about today. You see, while the gods and Tutankhamun are front and center of the festival, one person gets a bit sidelined. The royal wife, Anke Senamun, played her own role in Opet, and next time we dive into the traces of that. Also, we will talk about the career and records of Anke Senamun as the Queen of Egypt. So join me in two weeks for episode 147, Ankh SN Amun. That's all from me. Take care, and may your processions walk on roads of milk. May your ship glide along the river, shining in the sun. May your rituals bring a sense of unity with your community and your beliefs. May you enjoy a prosperous year, thanks to the divine beings. For some quick mental health facts, let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.